Florin Toussaint is professor of psychology at Luther College, chair of the Discover Forgiveness Advisory Council at the Templeton World Charity Foundation, and president of the Forgiveness Foundation. This is Lauren Toussaint. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. Uh, well, I'm here with Lauren Toussaint. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm thrilled to be here, Duncan. Thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Excellent. Um, I, I had first heard of you um, because you are a, an academic psychologist. You've explored a number of topics that I find interesting. Uh, and later on in this conversation, hopefully we can talk a little bit about the work uh, you're doing at your lab. Um, and I first heard about you because of your work on the psychological benefits of forgiveness, which is a very important topic. And I'd like to sort of just start off this conversation by asking, what do we mean by forgiveness? Like, do, is it just no longer caring if somebody had done us wrong? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a perfect place to start. And frankly, if we hadn't started here, I, I would be a little bit surprised. It's, it's probably the number one question that people have about forgiveness is, what are you asking me to do? And um, for some people, I, I think there's some belief sets or worldviews that make it really hard. And in other cases, it makes it much easier. So when I think about forgiveness, I'll tell you, there's two things that come to mind. One, I simply have to let go of uh, a desire to want to in some way get back at or hate someone uh, in, in general, <clears throat> someone that hurt me. And that's a really, that's a really big lift. Um, it's, it's not easy to just let that go, but that's, that's a key ingredient of forgiveness. In other words, to say that I've forgiven someone, but I still am filled with hatred. And, and I just would really, if I got the chance, boy, I would, I would even the score, you haven't forgiven them. I mean, you might want to tell yourself that, but you haven't. Um, the other thing is that <clears throat> in, many, in many circumstances, that might be just enough that if you could just drop the hatred or the desire to get back at, that would probably be sufficient. You could go on and live a pretty good life. Um, imagine that on your way to work someday, you get in kind of a, a really ugly uh, argument with someone, you know, sitting next to you on the subway. And you're really upset. You go into work and you're upset by it. But, you know, as the day goes by, you kind of realize, OK, I could see how they could have that, that view. And it was early. Neither of us had had coffee. And so we were grumpy and kind of probably intolerant of one. And you eventually just kind of let that go. But it's it's pretty much a stranger it's no one you're probably ever going to interact with again and so just getting back to neutral is fine but when you have like closer friends family co-workers um spouses and partners to say that you're just back to neutral is is probably kind of a low bar i say often you'd probably like to be able to do more than just not hate <laughs> your your partner right you, you'd you'd like to be able to say that you've returned to a place where you really truly appreciate who they are. You love them. You have a great deal of compassion for them. You can develop your, you know, former interests, curiosities about them, all, all of those good things. 
And so it's not just in those cases, it's not just letting go of the bad stuff, but it's also kind of replacing the bad stuff with what was probably once good stuff again. So um, that, I mean, <clears throat> when it comes down to it, forgiveness is really about those two things, getting rid of the, the ugliness in your heart towards someone who has hurt you and and in many instances, replacing that ugliness with some source of goodness and light and, and hope and peace again. Um, the other, there's two other things that really get in our way when we think about forgiveness. And one is that it is not synonymous with reconciliation. It's not the same thing as making good friends with someone again. Hmm. And in many circumstances, that may actually be a bad idea. Um, especially in, in circumstances where someone has been hurt, you know, badly, uh, either emotionally or physically or in some way or, or shape or form. Um, you know, to say that I want to, you know, make up and be good friends with that person again, be close to them, do things with them. Is, it, I mean, that just may not be good advice. Um, but the idea is even in those circumstances where we have to, for reasons of maybe safety or security, um, we have to stay at some distance from someone. It doesn't mean that you, you can't forgive them. Your intention toward them doesn't have to be hatred for the rest of your life. It, it could be, you know, it could return to kind of a neutral valence or, you know, you might even develop some goodwill toward them again at some point in time. And so, so there's a really key distinction there. When, when I suggest that someone might want to think about forgiving, I am not suggesting that I think they should reconcile with the person unless that's something that, that eventually kind of develops on its own accord, which oftentimes forgiveness does kind of open the door to that, but, but they're not one and the same. And then the, the other thing that's critical is to know that forgiveness is not justice. It's not the opposite end of the spectrum of justice. And that is so often confused that people think, well, I can either, you know, I can, I can, they can get what's due to them given that they hurt me and I can get justice or I can just forgive them. And that's the, that's the worst either, or I've ever heard. Hmm. Um, in fact, <clears throat> I would suggest to you that most oftentimes these two things happen in a fairly independent fashion. And that is to say, Sometimes people get perfect justice and they never forgive. They still can't forgive. And you can imagine that there are some instances in which someone has been hurt or violated in such a way. It doesn't matter what the courts say. I'll never trust you again. I, I can never let you into my heart again in a way that makes me vulnerable in that sense. I, I just can't forgive you, even though a 100% of justice has been done. Well, that to me tells me that these are not opposite ends of the same spectrum. There are two different processes that are occurring. Likewise, you can probably think about situations where, and these end up in the news, um, sometimes uh, people get no justice and there may be no hope of any justice. And yet they're still amazingly able to forgive. And these are what I would, you know, consider forgiveness heroes. These are people that are, are looking for the, the good in life in a way that, that far exceeds what most of us are able to comprehend. 
Um, and so they forgive wrongdoers despite the fact that they'll never you know, really get justice. And so I would say these are very separate issues that are all too commonly woven together in a way that makes people think it's an either or equation. And it's not. It's a both and situation. You can have both justice and forgiveness. And unfortunately, sometimes you can get neither. Yeah. Um, and so uh, those are the things that come to mind when we think about, you know, forgiveness, uh, when, when people, you know, kind of struggle with what is it, what am I trying to think about doing? Um, and then, of course, there are lots of other issues regarding, is it forgiving someone other than you or is it forgiving yourself? Sometimes yeah. people feel forgiven by a, by a deity um, sometimes, uh, people are kind of a forgiving type of person, you know, they're just a very, it's that's in their nature. Other times people just kind of do it in one instant and, and they're, it's not really part of who they are. So there's all kinds of different aspects of forgiveness that we could talk about, but at its core, it comes down to that, get rid of the ugliness, replace it with something good and don't confuse it with reconciliation or justice. Yeah, that, uh, as you were saying, that reminds me of something that I heard uh, the author Sally Rooney talk about uh, the phrase loving your enemies. She's like, it's not about liking your enemies. If you liked your enemies, they wouldn't be your enemies, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, um, so this, this seems on a certain level kind of like human emotions 101, that holding some kind of grudge is just going to be bad for you. Um, what, what kinds of getting into the psychology of this, what kinds of studies have you done? Uh, what, what have you seen that like one's relationship to forgiveness does to your overall mental, physical health? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, you know, over the years, we've done lots of different variations of the, of kind of the same theme. And that is to say that we know that, negative emotions, kind of negativity um, is, is just not very good for us. It, it doesn't help us mentally and it doesn't help us physically. Uh, a, a, another key distinction that we have to make here, since you've kind of opened the door to this, is there are two different flavors of uh, forgiveness. One is what we call decisional forgiveness more of a kind of a head than a heart thing. It's more a commitment. It's a, an intention. Um, but the thing that is really connected to our health and well-being is what we call emotional forgiveness. And that is what we were, what I was kind of getting at earlier is this kind of purging of the negativity. And ultimately what we find is that Oh, no matter which way you look at it, if you look at kind of the negative emotions of what we sometimes call unforgiveness, or if you look at the positive side of what we call forgiveness, in both cases, you find that across a broad array of mental health indicators, people who are more unforgiving have more struggles with their mental health. And the best example I can give you of this is a few years back, we analyzed uh, a really big sample of 40,000 plus U.S. adults 
that simply indicated in very plain terms if they were kind of a, the type of person who carries around a grudge and if that tended to be something that they hung on to for a good deal of time. So it kind of defined a, a what you might call kind of a character uh, trait uh, of unforgiveness. Uh, I, have, I have a tendency to just kind of cling to these things. And then um, amazingly in this data, we also had um, a, a lot of, in psychology, there's lots of ways to measure mental health conditions. One is to just ask people about their symptoms. Another is to go to a uh, licensed counselor or a clinician and, and have them diagnose you. And another means that's often used in, in kind of psychiatric epidemiology, you know, kind of like big population study of, of psychiatric illness is something they call like a screening measure or a, like an interview schedule where, um, you know, someone goes through an extensive kind of yes, no checklist with a number of kind of branching logics to it that ultimately land you in a place of being able to identify someone who is, is likely to be at, at good risk of uh, a mental health condition versus someone who is not. And so it's kind of a way of having trained interviewers provide not a clinical diagnosis, but what we might call like a screening diagnosis or a uh, it's something more than just a collection of symptoms, but it's probably not quite a full-blown clinical diagnosis. So kind of that middle ground, but but one that gives us a little more um, indication that someone's really struggling with something significant, not not just, you know, maybe a few days of the blues or feeling a little anxiety about an upcoming, you know, bill that's due or an exam that a student might be taking. So we had this kind of screening level data, interview, diagnostic interview schedule type data. And what we did is we connected the unforgiveness tendencies to a range of psychiatric illnesses, major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, antisocial personality disorder, some uh, things related to trauma disorders. And what we found in every case is that the, the most unforgiving people have elevated risks of being classified as likely cases of psychiatric illness. And their risk was increased by often two to four to eight times what someone who is not struggling with unforgiveness shows for their risk. So using someone who doesn't struggle with unforgiveness as kind of the baseline referent, someone who does struggle shows, you know, multiple times increased risk of psychiatric disorder. And that's unsettling. And, and it's unsettling, I think, for many reasons. But oftentimes when people hear something like this, they want to somehow explain it away. Because we all end up in this situation sometimes where we don't feel very good about the way someone treated us and we get hung up in a grudge. And um, unfortunately, people will oftentimes say things like, well, that's probably because, um, you know, people that are unforgiving are, are maybe disadvantaged in, in many ways in the world. And they're just, you know, they're kind of angry at the world. And so that's why they're depressed. It's that they're, they're in a low socioeconomic status category or something like that. And, and so they, people will come up with all kinds of reasons why, 
well, it, it would be okay for me to be unforgiving. It's not going to harm my mental health, right? Because I'm not in, I don't check any of the other boxes. But in a, in a data set like this, we had, um, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 different things that we were able to control for that rule out the, the likely possibilities that people would give to say, well, maybe it was more, maybe it was more that you had more women in that sample and they have a tendency to have more depression. And that's not true because we ruled out the effect of, of that variable. And somebody might say, well, maybe it was an older sample and, and it wasn't, but even if it were, we ruled out the effect of age and you can go down the list of your potential things that you might say, yeah, I mentioned earlier, kind of this tendency towards anger you know, maybe people are just angry at the world and that's why that, well, we ruled out the influence of anger and the, the, the impact of unforgiveness still sticks. It, it's, it's something that is unique and something that is frankly concerning in terms of its negative impact on mental health. What about the influence of things like agreeableness and uh, just general optimism? Because I feel like those things would yeah. probably lend more towards forgiveness. Yeah, good question. Um, not exactly in that particular study, but in many other studies, we've controlled for those exact variables. Um, and many other researchers have controlled for those exact variables. And what we find is that, um, you know, they have an expected impact, but it, it doesn't explain why unforgiveness is related to mental health. In other words, you, you can't say that it's just because people are less agreeable. That's why they're, you know, having these, these troubles. Um, and, you know, that goes for optimism and hope and lots of other variables as well. Um, and, and, and is a, a willingness to hold on to a grudge, is that a pretty good predictor of things like antisocial behavior? It seems like those types of personalities would be more likely to want to get even. Yeah, I mean, we haven't looked at that question as closely, but I, you know, I, I think that you've identified a um, kind of a cardinal feature of unforgiveness is that whether we do it intentionally or not, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's an openness, you might say, to just hanging on to that grudge. Um, it's, it's something that I'm willing to, yeah, I'm just willing to engage in, right, that I, I, I'm, I'm open to the possibility that I might be angry with this person for the next three years or five years or, you know, and some people more, more readily, I think, recognize this is not something that I, that I want to do. And have there been any studies of like a before and after forgiveness where someone has a grudge and then somehow you teach people to forgive and then see mental health outcomes later? Yeah, we've got several of those kinds of studies, um, and there are, you know, different approaches to teaching forgiveness. There's two, two of my colleagues have been really outstanding in developing these models, and uh, one is called the REACH model, and the other is called the Forgive for Good model. And uh, my colleague Everett Worthington developed this REACH model, I'm, I'm going to say maybe 25 years ago now, maybe 30 years ago. Um, it's a pretty straightforward model that says that once you make the decision that you want to forgive someone, you got to do these five things. You got to reach for it, essentially. You remember and, and be specific about what it is that you're trying to forgive. So he calls that the recall stage. You, you just 
you're just making sure you know what it is you're trying to get past. You then have to empathize with your offender. And that's a that's kind of a critical fulcrum point for forgiveness. Uh, you have to develop some ability to see your offender as being human, frankly. Empathy is often one of those things that does that. It, it, it puts me in the place of my offender where I might be able to see, oh, okay, I, I can see how they might have said that, right? Or they might have done that. If I had been in that situation, I might have done the exact same thing. Um, it's not always easy. It's not always as straightforward as that, but empathy is a crucial piece. Uh, entertaining the idea of uh, what's called an altruistic gift of forgiveness is a really big transformative point as well, because um, frankly, no one deserves it. And that's just part of the understanding of forgiveness is that you're never going to get to a point where you feel like, oh, yeah, now they deserve my forgiveness that, that you know, they've hurt you, they took something mm -hmm. from you, you're probably never going to you know, adequately feel like that imbalance is, is uh, set right again. Um, and so you, there's this comprehension that this is an undeserved gift. It's just the way it is. You either have to be willing to give it or not, but you can't, you're probably never going to be able to rationalize yourself into a place where you say, uh-huh, now they really deserve it. Um, the balance sheet, the accounting of all this makes sense. Uh, I can now forgive them. So that's a big piece of it. And then the last two pieces of the reach model are commitment and holding on, which really have to do with the idea that anytime you try to make a change, really in any aspect of the way you think or live your life or behave, um, you know, changes are easy, but maintaining them is what's hard. And everybody, I think, knows this who's ever tried to, uh, you know, either go to bed earlier you know, get up earlier, get more sleep, eat a better diet, get more exercise. All of those things are easy. And, and, you know, people might say, oh, that's not true. And actually it is. I mean, if I want to get more exercise after we're done here, I can go jump on my bike and take a five mile spin around the, you know, the trail. That's not a problem at all. It's that day after day, day in, day out, when things get really busy and all of a sudden there's all kinds of deadlines, it's, uh, maintaining that is the hard part, right? And the same thing is true for forgiveness. It, it might be quite a bit easier to just eventually, you know, you kind of reach a place where you say, I, I could forgive that person. But then if it's a coworker, you see them the next day at work and they do something that eh, doesn't really offend you, but it maybe kind of tweaks the sensitivity point that you still have there. And that's really hard. You, you, now you're faced with, okay, I got to, I got to hold on to this forgiveness commitment that I made. So that's the reach model. The forgive for good model is really, I could boil it down to three big pieces. One is, <clears throat> one is based in understanding forgiveness, which we've talked a good deal about already that you can't, you can't do what you don't really know. Um, two is what we oftentimes think of as, is kind of a, like a, a, a reframing. It's the kind of the head part of forgiveness. Um, and reorienting yourself to, to understand, you know, what has happened here? Is this a normal part of life? And the answer is often, unfortunately, yes. And then three in the forgive for good model is to, you know, find a kind of a, to make a, a physical home for forgiveness. And that's a really big part that I think is, is hard to, 
it's, it's hard to overemphasize how big a piece this is that when people have been hurt and they think about it, they get really agitated very easily, start to feel anxious, start to feel stressed. Their heart rate goes up. Um, their breathing starts to become disturbed. Their blood pressure goes up. They start to show all the symptoms of a stress response. And, you know, if you think about some time that you were cut off in traffic and it was really, um, you know, that's just an easy example, a simple example a lot of people relate to, but, you know, you get angry and upset. And then not only are you angry and upset in that moment, but but later that day, when you're retelling your coworker or your spouse or family about what happens, oh, then on the way to the work, you couldn't, can't believe what this person did. You start to get kind of all aroused again. That is incompatible. Those are the physiological manifestations of the negativity that you're inhabiting that is incompatible with forgiveness. And so that, that's kind of a big piece of the forgive for good model is that you have to find a way to cut through that whether that be standard stress relaxation methods, whether it be prayer, meditation, some other kind of mantra exercise, yoga, um, you know, the, the place for forgiveness does not come from someone who's red faced, screaming, clenching their fists and recount, recounting how this evil demon attacked you. Right. And that's a really hard thing to do is to come back to this story and tell it in a very objective way that involves no emotion. But, but doing that is a place where you can begin to kind of enter the forgiveness equation. So anyway, I'm sorry, that's a long answer oh, no, no, no. to your, to your question, but. Um, well, no, that's, uh, yeah. that's perfect. Yeah. I, I'm so far. We've basically kind of been talking about those in terms that are like fairly abstract. And I think most people in general, would be willing to say like, you know, in the same way that people say, oh, well, you know, lying is wrong, but then yeah. everybody lies, you know, pretty much, you know, not all the time, but people lie. Yeah. Um, same thing with forgiveness. It sounds in the abstract, you know, I want to have good physiological health. Um, and if this lends itself to that, then sure, I'm all in. But what about in like the hard specific cases, like, you have an abusive family member or, you, you know, w what about forgiveness when it comes to matters of race? Like, are, are, are you willing to tell people like, hey, you should forgive your oppressors or people who are continuously doing wrong to you and who you can't escape? Like, what, what then? Yeah, this is why I was excited about this conversation, Duncan. I, I knew you'd ask these kinds of questions and um, just just to to, to think a little bit about this, this is a really, really important question as it comes to forgiveness. The number one response here is that anyone, I think anyone that knows anything about forgiveness should understand whether this is a person with a religious background or not, whether they've studied forgiveness or if they've just, you know, had to deal with it on their own. It is not a prescriptive thing. When you... You are on really thin ice when you are telling someone they should forgive, no matter what the context is. And so, um, especially in the in the in the situation of repeated ongoing offense or system uh, um, systemic oppression, um, racial inequalities and injustices, uh, I am in no position, nor is anyone else, frankly, to suggest that any one individual or any group, quote unquote, should 
forgive, right? That's the, that's the hard part about forgiveness is that sometimes uh, you might witness a situation in which you, you might say to yourself, if they could just forgive this person, life would be so much better. And I know I, I see these things at times in my own life. I know other people do. It, it's just the reality of life that we cannot, we should not tell people when they should forgive. It's not a prescriptive thing. Um, you know, sometimes you can, you can say to someone, boy, that looks like a, that looks like a really bad uh, wound that you have there. And they say, yeah, I got it when I was out using my chainsaw or whatever. You say, you should go see someone who could stitch that up, right? That they will fix that. And, um, you know, that's good advice, but in the case of forgiveness, I, I think that's, that's not our place to, to say when someone should. So here's the thing that I would suggest in these circumstances, take racial injustices that are ongoing and have been ongoing for hundreds of years. I'm not about to say that my black friends and colleagues should just, you know, just, just forgive and feel better about it. And it'll be good for you. It'll be good for everyone. That that doesn't really solve the problem, right? The, the problem is that there has been long-standing injustice. But if you go back to what I said earlier about the understanding of forgiveness, there's no reason why someone can't be working at both of these things simultaneously. And what I would perhaps invite folks to consider is the possibility that if you are seeking justice <clears throat> and it's motivated out of what I might call constructive anger, and anger is a, a normal human response to injustice, then that's great. I'm angry that this happened. I'm upset by it. I wanna you know, institute change as a result of these injustices. I would, you know, I would support that. I would say more power to you in every which way possible. Let's make, you know, productive change. But if the pursuit of justice is motivated out of uh, hatred and a, a focus of destruction, I can't get behind that. And I, I can't really support that no matter where it comes from. And uh, a, a really good example of that, I think, today is the political divide that we that we um, uh, experience. That so many people on the right would really just, I think, rather see the left absolutely destroyed. Not they don't want to bring them around to a new way of thinking or find a middle ground. They would just like to eliminate. I think that's true, vice versa as well. Oh, yes. I, yes. Yeah. I, well, I was just about to say uh, yeah. the reverse is also true. I think that people on the left would like to see people on the right uh, just absolutely destroyed. And a survey not just too long ago, I, I'm, I'm going to blank on the source here. Uh, it, it asked people on the far left and the far right about the opposite end of the spectrum and said, the question was something to the effect of, would we be better off if 
uh, let's say they were asking someone who was on the left, would we be better off if people on the far right, if a good portion of them just died and were gone? And people on both sides of the political divide, about 16% of them, I want to say like, it was greater than 15%, not quite 20%, said yes. That would be the solution to our problems is if a, if a significant chunk of the people on in the you know extreme end of the other end of the spectrum just died. That's not the kind of justice that I can get behind, right? So my point would be to say, if, if justice is being motivated out of hatred and a, and a, a force of destruction, this is not going to be productive. Well, what, what then can help me remove the hatred? Well, we've, we've been talking about it. You know, it's forgiveness. It, it doesn't, forgiveness does not mean that you're not holding people accountable. It means that you're not interested in hating them and wanting to, you know, necessarily get back at them. But that's, that doesn't mean that you can't seek justice. There's lots of ways to find justice that don't mean that you're going to just get back at someone. You're going to counterattack. No, maybe you're going to fix the system in a way that it levels the playing field for everyone so that no one is really, um, you know, feeling like they're being oppressed or not being given the opportunities that other people are. And that doesn't necessarily mean that someone. So in order for I don't believe this is a zero sum game, in other words, in order for me to get ahead, other people don't have to fall behind. Right. That, that just doesn't that doesn't make sense to me. It never has. I, I have a collaborative mindset about life that, the, the you know, the, the rising tide lifts all boats. Right. That the better off the the poorest among us are, the better off we all are. And I think that forgiveness is a way to think about how can we find justice that is not motivated by hatred and intense anger. And when I see some of the destructive things that people do from all different lines, I mean, these are, you know, no politics here. I'm not saying that one side is at fault and and one side is right. But, but when I just see some of the, you know, radical attempts at what people I think are, are believing is, is justice setting things right. I think most of it is being motivated out of an intense place of hatred. I'm, I'm perceiving that you've done me wrong in some way and I am going to get you back. Boy, you, you gave me an ounce of pain and I'm going to pay it back with a pound. I mean, you're going to feel my wrath now. And I don't think that's productive. I don't see us going anywhere with that. And so how do you temper that? You have to find a place, at least if it's not forgiveness, it has to be a place of moderation. And I think maybe the, the, the goal of forgiveness might be a lofty one in those circumstances, but, but, it, but aiming for it, hey, even if you fall short, you might land in a place where you're less destructively oriented. I, I hear what you're saying. I, I want to get back to that, that chainsaw metaphor you, you yeah. touched on. Of, yeah. you know, oh, well, in that case, when someone has a physical injury, you, it, it's appropriate to say, hey, you know, this is how you should treat it or you should go seek help. And I can understand just in the bounds of like polite society that some kind of mental injury, as it were, is a little bit um, more t- 
of, of a touchy subject because then you're sort of entering another person's mind and diagnosing and prescribing and that sort of violates people's sovereignty in a certain way um but you you are uh an academic you know the data on these these issues you know what is good and bad in, in this case uh, in terms of health outcomes it it sounds a little bit like you're saying um listen i'm not going to tell somebody they should forgive but also they should probably just forgive <laughs> <laughs> all right so you found me out right um <laughs> <laughs> you figured me out. That, that is, that is absolutely true. Um, you know, you could probably say that for uh, the chainsaw example too, right? You, you, you say, I, I'm not going to tell you, you need to go to the ER, but if you did, they, they, they keep you from bleeding profusely and probably yeah. dying. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, I'm kind of saying the same thing here. Um, the, the reason why I've, I've been, doing this for 20 years and it's captured my attention and all of my energy is that I believe in it, right? I, I just believe that this is um, a mindset. Uh, for me, it's both a psychological and a spiritual mindset, um, you know, fueled very much by my, my own Catholic faith, um, that this is one of the highest callings um, that we as human beings uh, have it, to be able to endure injury at the hands of others and still find a way to move forward um, productively. And you're absolutely right. I'm not, I'm not about to tell people they should forgive. That's their own decision. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm just not going to say that, uh, and, and I, and I want to be clear about that. I'm, I'm not admonishing people to forgive. And I don't look down on people who don't, um, you know, I, I have my own grudges that I have a really hard time with, right. That, um, sometimes it feels more like, um, yeah, it, it feels more like a practice than an outcome, right. That you're, um, you're maybe not forgiving and saying, well, I did it so much as you're practicing forgiveness and hoping that eventually it might come. Um, and I, I think that's true of a lot of the spiritual traditions, a lot of the wisdom of faith and philosophy and, you know, ways, you know, um, worldviews and ways of interpreting the meaning of life. Uh, it's not always so much focused on, you know, what's the result as what is it that I'm doing? And I just know that I, you know, I, I feel like I live a better life when I can keep my eye on the ball in that way and, and try to, you know, try to recognize that everybody, including myself is imperfect and we all need grace and grace is defined as, uh, you know, it, it's an unworthy gift, right? You just get it. And a perfect example of that is forgiveness. You, you, you don't deserve it. No one deserves it. Um, sometimes you just get it. And sometimes you just offer it. And those are... Sorry, well, why does no one deserve it? I mean, can't somebody truly be apologetic and make up for a wrong? Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. They can be apologetic. They can make up for a wrong. Um, but that's not all there is to it. Right. I mean, you could probably think about all kinds of different circumstances in which it's, it's the act that, that was committed that, that is above and beyond whatever can be repaired. Um, yeah, kind of a done deal. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think of so many things um, and, and simple things often come to mind, but you know, more in depth, powerful things are, this is true for too, but you know, somebody steals a, a small amount of, you know, petty cash. Uh, I mean, there's very little, it, it, it would be very petty to me. Any amount of money that somebody steals from me would, would be hurtful. And even just because they give it back doesn't mean that, that, that fixes it. Right. They come and they say, Oh, I'm so terribly sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. I took this $20 from you. It's, it's not about the 20 bucks. I, I can, I can, I'll probably never even notice that. It's that, that, that's a, a really deep, deeply injurious experience for me. I, you broke something between the two of us that an apology and a return of the money can't fix. And, and that's the place where you are completely helpless as, as an offender, right? You, because forgiveness is, it, it, it's not deserved just because you tried to put things back mm. the way they did. It's kind of like a, you know, you, you break your, uh, your mother's favorite vase, you know, or whatever. And uh, yeah, you can glue it back together, but is it, is it the same? Probably not. I mean, it's going to show all the cracks and there's no globs of glue everywhere. And it, it's just not, it's now a broken base. It doesn't mean that it can't, you know, still be something beautiful, a piece of art that is kind of reconstructed as best as possible, but you know, it, it's different. It's changed. And sometimes it might actually be better. You know, it might, might actually, some of those cracks in the glass might now create prisms or something that, you know, show a, a different thing when it's in the light or what, you know, I mean, there's lots of ways. Um, a scar that heals is, is sometimes maybe a reminder of the things that you, that you've, that you've survived, that you made it through. Um, you know, oftentimes people say a, a broken bone is in its healing. It's, it's healed places stronger than around it. Mm. Um, you know, all, all kinds of things might be used here to think about, um, you know, the, the beauty of that kind of, undeserved gift but i i think it's going to be hard to argue that and and this is you know probably not true in every faith and every you know belief system but um, it's hard for me to see where people deserve forgiveness fair, fair enough I, I want to take an extreme example sure of and and sort of tied into uh something that we mentioned at the beginning about the difference between forgiving others and forgiving yourself because uh, i think a lot of people I, I think for most decent people, perhaps it's harder to forgive yourself because it feels like you're letting yourself off the hook. And I read recently these, uh, these jailhouse interviews, with Ted Bundy, oh. and he was, um, he, he didn't use the first person because for, for legal reasons, he didn't want to confess at this point, even though he had been convicted. So he was describing 
the 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 mind of the man who he thinks did it um and uh he's talking about how this person um the the crimes they've committed are so terrible they can't even face them so the only way that they can uh they can stop committing them and move on from them is to just make a clean break with the past not to forgive but to entirely forget and because probing it directly is too painful and would almost cause these uh, these spasms of, I guess in his case, violence to, to rise again. Um, awfully convenient um, narrative to tell yourself in that situation, but he was somewhat persuasive. Um, I, I don't think I fully buy it, but I can see kind of where he's coming from. And so I guess my question for you then is, is it possible, um, do you think if a guy like that had been able to forgive himself, that that would have just by the nature of forgiveness entailed a true reform in his ways? Or can somebody just forgive themselves and then continue to do the exact same bad things? Like is forgiveness useful? Yeah, that's another fantastic question. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I'm going to say this. Uh, Ted Bundy is probably, uh, you know, he's an exception, right? So I think that uh, reflecting on his thoughts brings us to a really interesting question that applies to all of us. But what I'm going to say is at the outset here is that I, I don't know about Ted Bundy and I, I, I can't, I can't you know, predict or, or yeah. even surmise what, what might be going on in, in his um, mind. But the bottom line is this, I think what you're talking about is um, accountability and uh, whether it be, you know, whether it be others that are hurting us or uh, ourselves who are hurting other people, I, I think forgiveness can be useful, but in particular, when you're talking about self-forgiveness, it has to be paired with accountability. That um, I, I think many of us who, who have studied self-forgiveness, we would agree that the, the key, if I can speak on behalf of many of us, I don't know if I can or not, but um, I, I think many folks would agree that a key distinction between forgiveness of others and forgiveness of yourself is that when you're forgiving yourself, you are in completely different territory because you are both um, the offender and the judge. And it's easy for us to say, you know, I did this thing wrong. And, you know, people do this kind of thing all the time and it's easy to rationalize it. Um, it's easy to suggest that, you know, if I were to think about this too much as, as you know, I guess I said, I wouldn't do this, but I'll come back to, the extreme example of Ted Bundy, right? It's like, if I think about this too much, it's just going to be too hard for me. And, um, you know, I would suggest that that's, that's, a, that's kind of a shortcut. That, that's an easy way out. And uh, the, the phrase that I like the most, um, I believe it was the philosopher Jeff Murphy, who says, uh, he uses the phrase cheap self-grace. And you're giving yourself kind of a cheap uh, gift of forgiveness when you don't fully recognize the damage you've done 
and then commit to changing so that you don't do that again in the future. That that's a that is a a key part of the self-forgiveness process is that you know we just talked about deservedness. Nobody deserves it, but there are people that you know kind of make it easier, things that make it easier to forgive. And um, you know, in the case of someone hurting you, one thing that makes it easier to forgive them is obviously an apology, right? So even though they still maybe don't deserve it, it sure makes it easier to, to witness their remorse and to, to say, okay, I, I understand how this happened now or, or, you know, whatever the case might be. In the, in the case of self-forgiveness, if you're just saying, well, you know, you know, I had a bad day and so I said some things I probably shouldn't have. Yeah, it sounds like you're just making excuses. Um, but if you say to yourself, you know, I had a bad day. And when, when that happens, when I have a bad day and I get into kind of a really negative place and a bad funk, um, I have a tendency to lash out and hurt people. And I need to change that. I need to find a way to get a hold of my negativity and make sure that it doesn't leak out between my lips in a way that makes other people's days become bad days. And, you know, taking, responsibility for that uh committing to change and then maybe even in some way acting in some way that suggests that you are changing uh, and whatever that might be i mean sometimes that might be something kind of symbolic um you know someone might you know write uh you know write a uh, an inspirational quote or something above their their computer to monitor and stick it up there so that when they're having a bad day, they they're reminded of, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and be better in that way, not lash out at people. Um, maybe they do something like they start to keep a journal or, you know, to try to record these situations so that they know better what their triggers are when they're having a bad day. Um, but the bottom line is to, to just say in either case, forgiveness without accountability is, is kind of a hard thing to think about i think and i I don't think that it's particularly productive um because the whole the whole point especially in the form of self-forgiveness is that you're forgiving yourself so that you can move on and and do better things be a you know a more productive contributor to society and the world what about in the case of like addiction where you Maybe, you know, people are want to have access to certain drugs, but they don't have the money, so they go steal. And part of that, you know, the, the shame is part of that cycle of addiction. And we talk about, you know, okay, I, I'm uh, an example of I, I sometimes get irritated and tell people off when I shouldn't have. That feels like within a much more comfortable bounds to change that behavior. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're addicted to heroin, it's very difficult and your free will is kind of robbed in a a certain sense. So is it any different in cases like that? Yeah, I I think it is. Um, And in, in large part, we've talked about the, the notion of forgiveness, both forgiving others and forgiving yourself starts with the decision. And in, in situations where your ability to make those decisions is compromised. I mean, the, the whole, the whole notion of forgiveness, the whole notion of self-improvement, you know, a lot of these things are kind of uh, set off to the side a bit. You know, um, I, I don't know that 
that the ideas that we think about, you know, in terms of self-forgiveness and forgiving other people. I mean, they're certainly relevant um, and some approaches to dealing with addiction and, and recovery, uh, they include elements of forgiveness. Um, the, uh, the AA approach includes forgiveness as a, as a key part of it. So I'm certainly not saying that forgiveness is irrelevant to this. I, I think it's a significant part of it, frankly. But, you know, as, as you've said, in terms of like really hardcore addictions, there's many factors going on there, some of which are, you know, neurobiological, some of which are, you know, just kind of entirely outside of the, the bounds of the conversation that we're having. And yeah. someone who is, um, you know, is, is only going to kind of come back into touch with reality through a significant detox process that may require three, four, five or more days to get them back to a kind of a state of homeostasis. The idea of forgiveness, the idea of hope, meaning in life, all of these things I think are, you know, secondary to the, the sheer power of that neurobiological reinforcement mechanism that's driving them to do this repeatedly. Um, and so that, that's a, that's a, that's a very different situation, kind of like in some ways the Ted Bundy question. Yeah. Um, the, really out at the extremes, there may be something to learn there, but I think that at the moment, the thing we know best and the, and the value of forgiveness is more in our kind of daily, you know, interactions yeah. with one another. Yeah. I heard a, uh, a, a caller calling to Howard Stern once and he was a serial killer <clears throat> and they confirmed he was a serial killer. Um, because detectives talked to them. He had certain details on the crimes that uh, police hadn't released publicly. And uh, he said he had stopped killing. And uh, when Stern asked why, he said, well, I needed my car in order to go out and do these things. My car broke down for a month. It was in the shop. And during that time, it was kind of like a detox. And he, oh. he's, he's like, I just haven't had the feeling of wanting to do it since then. Um, but th these exceptions... I think uh, they are, uh, they're not common for everyday life, as you said, yeah. but I think they're important to examine because, um, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here with forgiveness and um, these, these sort of forms of self-forgiveness, a, a lot of sort of the practical reason for doing it is because it, you know, hatred has, or, or, you know, doing wrong by others oftentimes is linked to unhappiness. Um, and there are definitely people out there, like um, even like a Jeffrey Epstein, for example, who I don't think felt any guilt for what he was doing. And it, it you know, whether or not someone believes in an afterlife, it, heaven and hell clearly exist as a form of, you know, psychological torture for having done wrong. But there are people out there who don't experience that psychological torture for having done wrong. And so in that sense, they're like the criminally insane who don't go to jail. The, you know, they don't go to hell because they're sick. Are, is there any hope for those people? Um, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I think... I have a hard time saying that there's zero 
probability that you know folks who have hurt others and hurt others in really significant ways have a hard time believing that there is zero hope for those folks um but that's my kind of you know personal opinion i'm not really basing that on a lot of science it's also informed by my faith of course um and um you know, I, I guess I come back to the idea that uh, often <clears throat> in our society in particular, we have a tendency to really focus on the individual. We're, we're called an individualistic society. And really so often, um, you know, we're the product of our environment. You know, we're the product of our contexts and different things that, that we find ourselves in. Um, I don't know what the special brew of circumstances is that causes some people to really go in deviant directions. But all of the research that we've done on forgiveness tells me one thing uh, for sure. And that's that people can learn how to do it and get better at it. And, you know, in some cases, um, like you take another, this is a really trivial example, but um, you know, you take somebody who has never thrown a football before and you spend an hour with them, the amount of progress you're going to see there is probably going to be phenomenal, right? I mean, they're, they're going to go from not even knowing how to um, hold the ball to you know, being able to figure out how to not only hold it, but throw it and you know, get some kind of uh, spot spiral out of it. Or you're just going to, you're going to make tremendous progress. You take someone who's maybe a collegiate starting athlete and they might not, you know, you spend an hour with them. You, you might not be all that impressed. You might say, well, I think maybe we had some progress here. So I guess all I'm saying is that, you know, eventually you kind of find a ceiling effect often with, with things like, um, you kind of bump up against a, a place where I don't know how much better I can get at this. And so in some ways, you know, people that maybe struggle the most or seem like they're the, the, the most hopeless or maybe the, the places where we have the most opportunity for mm -hmm. growth. Um, you know, I, I just, the study after study, um, both the reach forgiveness method and the forgive for good method um, over and over again show that, if you, if you teach people how to forgive, they get better at doing it. They show more forgiveness and their mental health improves. They become more hopeful, more optimistic, more filled with gratitude for life. Physical health typically improves as well. Um, you know, these are, uh, these are signs that, um, that even, even in situations where you might feel it's completely hopeless, there's, there's reason to believe that there is hope. I mean, for, for instance, some of the forgiveness research has been done with people that you would think would have zero um, intention of becoming more forgiving. And they do. For instance, um, you know, people, uh, mothers who have had their children murdered as a result of, um, you know, religious wars. Uh, I don't see any reason why 
your faith beliefs would essentially be shattered. Um, your worldview would be a wreck. I, I can't see any reason why these people would, would want to forgive. And yet you teach them a little bit about forgiveness and they improve and they show considerable gains in forgiveness. Um, in 2007, we went to Sierra Leone. At that time, it was five years since they had had the bloodiest civil war on the continent of Africa. And five years later, I couldn't envision why anyone would want to forgive any of the atrocities that had gone on there. And yet, that's exactly what happened. You know, we spent about five days teaching them about forgiveness and, you know, helping them think about different ways that we've talked about today about forgiveness. And sure enough, they made gains, statistically significant, things that we could see in the data that we said, oh my gosh, these people became more forgiving and their mental health showed benefits as well. And, you know, so yeah, the question, I mean, sometimes people put it to me this way. They say, is there anything that's unforgivable? And, you know, I say, well, probably, but I'm, I've yet to come across what that would be. I mean, it's, it's really amazing to me, you know, kind of the indomitable human spirit. People find it within themselves to, to put the pieces back together. And a big part of doing that is, is realizing I can't go on with a hundred percent of hatred filling my life. And, and that's just not helpful. Um, um, we're, we're at an hour here. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, sure. So if you have to go by all means, but I have a couple final questions I wanted to ask if that's okay. Let's, okay. Well, let's do it. Yeah. Um, well, th this, this has to do with um, some of the work that uh, you've done at your lab. Uh, I saw a paper that you had put out about uh, relaxation techniques. So not, not quite the subject of forgiveness, but, yeah. you know, mental, physical well-being. Yeah. Um, and I found, I found the results interesting, but basically you compared relaxation techniques um, and saw which were most effective. W what, did, what did you all find? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because it actually, the motivation for that study is exactly um, in, in the, um, it's in the, it's in the motivation of forgiveness, right? That uh, something I said earlier about the forgive for good method says that, you know, you, you can't really forgive when you're all consumed with um, frustration and distress. And so uh, we were looking um uh, of course, you know about things like yoga, mindfulness, these kinds of things. I mean, but honestly, sometimes these things take a special place. You know, you got to change your clothes. You're going to get sweaty and gross. I mean, you, you got to have a special mat or something, you know, or, or at very least, you got to get in that, in that kind of place where you do your, your mindfulness meditation or your mantra meditation, whatever. So we were looking for things that would be kind of like, hey, um, in the moment, Right. You just had a nasty um, slug fest, so to speak, with your work team. You're back in your cubicle or your office steaming or you turned off your, your Zoom screen, slam the lid on your laptop and are storming around the house. You know, what are the things that, you know, in maybe 15 minutes you could do just to cut the edge, right? Cut the edge off of the stress that you're experiencing. That was the main motivation for that study. That was it. We just wanted to say, hey, um, 
lots of things out there and available. We got a hold of a breathing technique, an imagery technique, and then we compared it to something that's been used for a long time called progressive muscle relaxation. And I'm sure you're familiar with imagery. You know, you kind of create a almost kind of a mental story that you think about, um, a, you know, a place and experience that just really brings you peace and calm. It's really about as simple as that. Breathing is little more than what it sounds like, right? Deep breathing. So you, you focus exclusively on just bringing in deep, full breaths and, you know, releasing them in a very natural, relaxed way. Something that, you know, we just don't, we don't do very well. Typically, you know, we're kind of hustling around, huffing and puffing. Um, and so th that's not terribly complicated and frankly, anybody could do it anywhere. Right. So that's the, that's the point of both of these things. And then the third one is a little bit more, maybe, um, requires a little bit more, but progressive muscle relaxation is just the, um, exercise of kind of, you know, systematically going through tensing and relaxing your muscles. And, and in some ways the, the theory goes that, progressive muscle relaxation teaches you what the experience of relaxation is by contrasting it real clearly with what tension is. So if you grip and tighten and, and really contract your forearm for 10 or 15 seconds, you start to realize, Ooh, you know, there's some places that start to feel almost a little bit numb or a little bit sore. And then when you relax that you get a really distinct contrast and it's a systematic approach to doing that on kind of a full body level. So, we have these three things that would be pretty easily accessible no matter where you're at, what you're doing. It takes a very short amount of time. And we just wanted to know, is there, is there kind of a leader of the, of the pack here? Which of these things would be best? If someone you know, comes back to their office steaming and spewing about how this last meeting went, what would be the, you know, the best single best thing you could do for 15 minutes? I mean, almost everybody's got an opportunity to do something like that. And what we found is that um, it doesn't matter what you do. You just got to do something. And uh, guided imagery, breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, they all showed uh, almost identical relaxation benefits. Um, when we looked at physiology, the one thing that looked a little bit different is that the breathing physiology is a little bit maybe slower to take. And it actually might arouse you a little bit more to start with, but then it brings starts to bring benefits a few seconds later. So, you know, there's maybe different physiological pathways through which these things are working, but ultimately the, I would say the bottom line is if you're stressed and tense about something, don't just sit there and endure it. You know, any one of these things would be fairly easy to do. Uh, my go-to place is Yosemite National Park. I visited there about 25 years ago. Um, most spiritual place on earth I think I've ever been. You know, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And if I needed to, in, in a really bad spot, I could go to Yosemite. I'm standing next to Yosemite Falls. I mean, yeah, there's, there's few things that are going to bring me to a, you know, a place of relaxation better than that. Uh, deep breathing, I use all the time, um, especially when I got to give a talk somewhere. I'm nervous about it. And I'm starting to feel the butterflies. Um, as it turns out, the you know kind of the physiology of deep breathing it, it 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 affects the mechanisms that are also kind of causing you to be stressed. So you can't you can't simultaneously 
be breathing deeply and also be feeling the full blown effects of stress. It doesn't, it's incompatible. Mm -hmm. So, so that works good. I don't use progressive muscle relaxation, but it's a, you know, a common and longstanding um, method that we wanted to test. And, and in some ways kind of, it's a well-known approach that, that we could have used as something of a, you know, a, like a standard treatment, like, so um, ultimately that's, that's the purpose of that work. And um, we're, we're also branching out a little bit further. We're conducting a study on something called emotional freedom technique. It involves some uh, kind of uh, affirmations, some things that you say and continue to say, and then also some tapping on some pressure points. And uh, we're tying that specifically, um, looking specifically at its effect on forgiveness. And so we'll be getting back to doing the relaxation work and looking at its role in forgiveness. But I think there's a really big piece here that we haven't necessarily focused as much as we should have been focusing on. Um, and that's just simply that I, I can't get in a headspace or a heart space of considering forgiveness if I'm just, you know, stressed out about what's happened and, and I'm still, you know, blood is pumping and blood pressure is skyrocketing. Just not a place that, that forgiveness can inhabit. So, yeah. um, so yeah, that's the point of, of that work. And um, we, you know, we started it several years ago and published it more recently um, and have, a, you know, another study coming kind of in that same online so um the last thing i wanted to ask you about is i i don't know if you've ever read the dalai lama's uh, art of happiness um but basically it's a short book and he he basically connects happiness in general uh to compassion and, and doing good deeds for others as being a powerful source for happiness um would you say that's true or big question here, but where does happiness in general come from? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, that's a sizable question. You are correct. Um, so we've connected uh, forgiveness to happiness in several different lines of our work. Um, forgiveness can be thought of as, a, you know, I think centrally as an altruistic gift. It's, it's an act of altruism. It's a, it's a doing good for the good of others. Um, <clears throat> and one thing that we know about altruism in general, as the Dalai Lama has, you know, aptly pointed out and others, far more research in social psychology and other areas, positive psychology shows that there's kind of a, a do good, feel good effect. And that um, some of our, uh, perhaps some of our least tapped sources of happiness are simply doing good for other people. Um, that we oftentimes think of, you know, well, what, what do I need? What, what do I have to get? I need to obtain certain degree of these resources and make this amount of money and get this sort of status and have these kinds of experiences um, where I travel and see the world and enjoy the finest wines and foods. And all of that certainly is good. It makes you feel good. And there's a, a, a good deal of happiness that comes from that. 
but um, you know, some philosophers have distinguished between um, you know what would kind of be called hedonism, just sheer good feelings, um, which in some ways is, can feel kind of like an addiction. You know, like when you're feeling really good, you want to continue to feel really good, and, and so you're kind of chasing that. Uh, some people have described that as the hedonic treadmill, right? You get on this thing and once you get that, you know, once you kind of get that happiness buzz from, hey, you know, I was out doing these things. Oh, man, well, you want the next thing. But some people have described, uh, you know, this goes way back in philosophy of Aristotle and others. I'm talking about eudaimonia. And that's true happiness. And um, I, I think... Uh, a good deal of philosophy and positive psychology today would say that true happiness is, is kind of a, um, something that comes about not really as an outcome that you chase, that you achieve, but it comes about as, a, as an aspect of a, I almost hate to say it's a byproduct, but it's a product of how you live. It comes about as a, not so much as something that you manage to somehow obtain and, and, and we're able to get in some way, but it was something that came about just as a consequence of the way that you went about leading your life. And oftentimes, you know, when you go about leading your life in a way that is oriented to serving others, putting others needs above yourself, um, you know, kind of a humble approach, uh, one where you're grateful for the, you know, gifts that you've been given and the, the people that you know inhabit this this place and time with you, when you're able to be a forgiving person, um, not you know bound up in the grudges of the past, when you're able to find some meaning and some value in the work that you do, um, you know this is the these are the characteristics of a lifestyle that that brings with it an ongoing sense of true happiness, fulfillment, you know. Uh, uh, not just feeling good, not always will that be the case, but feeling significant that you're making a contribution that, you know, life is worth living, that you're satisfied with where you've been and where you're going. Um, that's a really good question. It's a really big question. Um, I know just a little bit about it and uh, uh, happy to share my thoughts on it, but there are, you know, there are hundreds of years of uh, philosophy and theology and wisdom on happiness that um, uh, it's impossible to capture even in, you know, you could devote an entire episode to this Duncan. I think yeah. you'd, you'd probably have some good conversation, but it still would be hard to arrive at a, a you know, an ultimate answer. But for me, uh, you know, kind of bottom line takeaway message is um Happiness is not something I chase. It's something that I, I feel like I encounter when I'm living life the way that I'm kind of meant to live it. You know, the, the, it's, the, it's the outcome of um, living a, a good life, I guess, in some ways. Unless you're Ted Bundy. Yeah. In, in that case, um, it, we've got another discussion to have. No, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, look, Lauren, thank you so much for your time. Uh, fabulous discussion. And uh, it's a really pleasure talking to you. No, the pleasure's been all mine, Duncan. This is, this is great. Like I said, I, I looked forward to this conversation from the moment you were in touch. I, I, uh, 
I know, I know your podcast. I've, I've listened to some of the work that you've done. Um, Fantastic. It's, it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. You're asking in, in, in my view, you're asking the important, the hard questions. Um, you're offering the time uh, for folks to really engage those questions. And uh, it's been a really comfortable um, conversation. So thank you. I always, I, I, I learn uh, from doing these kinds of things. So thank you. I'm trying. Lauren, take care. And uh, once again, thank you. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Lauren Toussaint. And thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gamey. See you next time.